So hopefully this is kind of like part of a process of more like opening up as he sort of gets older because he's a bit of an old man now, to be honest. Like, Welcome to Keep It Fictional, a weekly podcast for book lovers by book lovers. Build your to-be-read list with Sadie, Liz, Virginia, Fiona, and Corrine from the Port Moody Public Library. Warning, this podcast contains strong opinions and may cause an increase in your library holds list. Hello, Corrine. Hello, Fiona. Hello, Gabriel. Hello, Mark. Hello, listeners. Welcome to another episode of Keep It Fictional from the Port Moody Public Library. Now, we are recording today's episode on August the 12th. But in this episode, we are going to look ahead to the fall because I can't wait for the summer to go away and the heat to go away. But of course, we're not here to argue about the weather. We are here to argue about books. So hopefully today and next week's episode, we will try to convince you to pick up some of these upcoming releases, books that are coming out in the last four months of the year. Yes, that's right. It's almost at the end of the year. That is one scary thought. So listeners, get your pen, get your paper ready, get your phone ready. Here we go. We're going to tell you about 25 books in the next two episodes, all books that we are looking forward to reading. So we are going to start with Mark. Okay. Thank you, Virginia. So the first book that I am looking forward to this fall is called Kilometer 101 by Maxim Osipov. He's a contemporary Russian writer. And the title of the book, Kilometer 101, refers to the town of Tarusa, which lies exactly 101 kilometers outside of Moscow. It's sort of seen as like this kind of distance place that's far away from the political center of power where these sort of like artists and other sort of like people that aren't necessarily favored by the Russian government sort of go to settle. Osipov himself has worked and lived in the city for many years because by training, he's actually a cardiologist who in recent years has started writing. So he kind of has started this kind of second career for himself in literary works. And this particular book is sort of a mix of short stories as well as short nonfiction essays about the people of the city as well as as his own life in the City, So it kind of has like this interesting blend of both fiction and nonfiction that I think will be rather interesting. And it's also published by New York Review of Book Classics, which is a, a publisher that I quite like. They've published a lot of authors that I've never heard of, but end up really liking. The fact that they're publishing the work also kind of gives a little extra interest to me. And the stories themselves kind of cover a lot of the political, ethnic discrimination within Russia as well as kind of the political situation more generally, as Osipov himself recently emigrated from Russia to Germany this March, for reasons that you can probably guess, as the Russian government sort of cracking down on writers and other people who don't sort of tote the kind of line that Moscow wants them to be taking on political issues, the patriotic education, all these other things. And Osipov's work has sort of deviated from that quite a bit. So just to get a better understanding of who this writer is and what he's kind of trying to say. I think will be rather interesting. So that's my first anticipated book for the fall that I think people may enjoy and I think I will enjoy as well. I think you will enjoy it too. It sounds so much like a Mark book. 
you know yourself very well, Mark. I think this is amazing. And I also like how you say, you know, like these certain publishers that just like, they're always publishing these books that you're like, I've never heard of this offer. And then you discover a new one. So that's really exciting. So I am so glad you found that book. It is going to be perfect, I think. All right. So um, are we doing the thing where we're just going to get Mark to pick whoever, random? Sure. Since Virginia picked me to go first, I think I'll pick her to go second. All right. I can go second. That is totally okay. Because I'm super excited about my next, my first book. It is a debut novel. And I read this because of four words. Weathering Heights with Worms. As described by Tamsin Muir, of course, the author of Gideon the Knife, the Lock Tomb series. And uh, I am 100% here for that. Now, this is not a retelling, so it's nothing to do with Weathering Heights, but it's like Weathering Heights give it has worms. And Weathering Heights happens to be, like when I was reading classics in high school, that was my favorite classic. So this is like kind of perfect for me when I heard that. So give you as someone who's looking for just a little bit of creepiness, oh, who am I kidding? It's a lot, lot of creepiness in your full reading then you can't do better than this atmospheric gothic horror science fiction debut. It is so good. This story begins with an unnamed non-binary main character. They are on a train heading towards their new job at a fancy chateau. Now, they have been sent by the Institute to become the next doctor-in-residence for an extremely wealthy family because the patriarch requires 24-hour care. The previous doctor has died, and according to the family, they have committed suicide because every doctor belongs to the Institute, so the Institute are sending them as a replacement. Now, starting a new job usually can be quite unnerving, especially this family. This is a weird, weird family. First of all, we have the Baron, who is this like mean-spirited, very like imposing kind of patriarch. Then you got his son and his wife. And then the wife always has like, keep telling the doctor, there's something wrong with me. Like there's something under my skin. And then you have got the twins. Every time they walk in and out of the room, the lights will flicker on and off and the heads keep getting stuck together and you kind of have to untangle them. It's a very strange family that this new doctor has to go and live with. But that's okay because they are prepared. They know how this works because this is actually nothing new to them. They have been there before. In fact, they were actually their previous doctor, at least, I guess, inside the body of this previous doctor. Now, there are many, many doctors in the world. The Institute control them all, but there are many of them, but they're also only one in some ways. Um, think of it as kind of like a hive mind. I can see Corinne is just like shutting her ears off. And so what is unsettling about this job is not the weird family that they have to live with because like they already know about that. But what is weird is that the doctor, this new doctor, have no memory of what happened to their last body. And that is unheard of because, like I said, they're kind of like a hive mind. They know everything. But how is it that they don't know how they die? So the first thing that our main character has to do when they get there is to do maybe an autopsy. And while they were carefully examining the body and see what's wrong and what might have caused the death of them, they discovered, are you ready for this, Karine? They discovered that Behind 
the eyeballs, there is a black hair-like thing that is just slivering in and out and suddenly just got like, whoosh, just got like went back inside. What is that? This is Leech by Heron and Ness. Set in a post-apocalyptic world where humans have basically destroyed everything and they have proven that they are totally incapable of taking care of the world. So to ensure that the humans continue to survive, something else will need to take charge. This is body horror. This is a gothic family drama. This is science fiction with a lot of medical stuff. And of course, that's my favorite. It's definitely the mood. It is so disturbing, so unsettling, so creepy. It is the vibe that I want from my kind of horror. But on top of all that, there is just the, the narrator's voice is so good. It is still a very, even though it, despite all the creepiness, it's still a very character-driven story. And as author Peter Watts said of this book, if you have ever wondered what would happen, give David Cronenberg and Edgar Allan Poe bump into each other at the same conference about parasites, here is your answer. So coming out in September, I beg you to check this book out. It is Leech by Heron Ennis. No, <laughs> that's okay. It is amazing. It is so good. Um, all right. I, I am going to choose Fiona. Thank you. Thank you for letting me follow that. <laughs> I just got to get over some queasiness. I was like so there with the worms until you started talking about skin. Worms belong in dirt. Okay. So I was really excited to talk about mine. And now I'm having some regrets because <laughs> I feel like we could use something just like really positive and straightforward right now. But I'm not going to I'm not going to give you that. So um, this is a book I'm very excited about. I'm not usually a debut author. I like I like things to be proven often, but I don't know how this debut author got on my radar. But it was I think something where I just like read the concept and it and it jived with me so completely that I was like, yep, I'm there for that. Um, so I'm kind of I'm excited for this. This is um, Self Portrait with Nothing by Amy Pakwatka, and this is about Pepper who was left on a doorstep as a child and abandoned, grew up in a caring family of two mothers, is now in their 30s and married to a stable husband, but has a secret. Uh, she actually discovered who her birth mother was when she was in her teens. And her mother is none other than a famous painter who, it is rumored, has the ability to draw forth a person from an alternate universe from their portraits. So alternate universes in the little ways are absolutely my thing. I am not a multiverse person. I don't want to talk about I don't want to talk about the big things, but I love thinking about alternate versions of self. That is just like a chef's kiss for me. So uh, that is all it took for me to, to get excited about this book. And then reading the reviews made me even more excited because it sounds like it's very character driven. People who were looking for sort of like horror were like a little bit disappointed. I think it's a bit more grounded. <laughs> <laughs> that sort of literary magical realism, which I'm very there for in that capacity. 
And yeah, so this is Amy Pakwatka's self-portrait with nothing. Pepper discovers a portrait of her mother with an infant uh, entitled Portrait with Nothing. So that is sort of the the central, yeah, harsh, right? Uh, there's sort of a central mystery going on here, which is something I don't, I'm not so much about like a, like a procedural as just like sort of a little bit of like, who am I? Uh, uh, you know, central mystery of of personal exploration. And if it involves uh, alternate universes, fantastic. And I'm going to go now to Gabriel. Very excited to see what you've got. All right. The first book on, honestly, what is just a long list of sci-fi and fantasy novels that I'm excited for coming up is The Sunbearer Trials by Aidan Thomas. So this is the first book in a duology, and it's the latest from the author of the other young adult book, Cemetery Boys. So if you heard about Cemetery Boys or if you read it when it came out, this is another one by Aidan Thomas. It's expected to release early September, and I'm excited for it. Just from a quick look... It hits a lot of beats that are familiar to me and also very appealing in the sense that it kind of just looks like Percy Jackson meets the Hunger Games. It's kind of, it feels very fanficy, honestly. Um, it, it's like if you took all those little kids from Camp Half-Blood and then you made them compete for Bloodsport. So the Sunbearer Trials is something that happens at the dawn of the decade. Soul, the sun god, needs help to keep the evil gods of Obsidian from destroying everything. And he does this by hosting a series of five trials, kept mysterious and unknown to anyone but the participants. And these participants are the 10 semi-dioses, aka demigods. So the winner will bring light to the temples across Reno del Sol, but the loser, well, the loser's the most honorable. They'll be sacrificed to Sol, and they'll help power the sunstones that will kind of protect the people of Reno del Sol for the next decade. So Teo is the son of Quetzal, and he's pretty sure he's not going to get chosen. However, he is terrified that his best friend Nia might be. Reluctantly, he's also worried that his friend-turned-rival Aurelio might be chosen, even though he thinks it might be good to take him down a notch. The idea of either of these two being sacrificed to the sun is kind of worrying, the odds, not super in their favor, but he himself doesn't have to worry, right? Like he's not one of the strongest, but of course, wrong. So I'm excited to see how it all pans out. He gets chosen to be one of the people in the Sunbearer Trials, as you might expect. And the characters in this actually sound more likable than the Hunger Games because I didn't, I, I enjoyed that series, but I didn't particularly like any of the characters that much. I just sort of thought it was like a fun concept, I guess, but I, I wasn't super invested in any of them. I, and I like this premise more. So I think it's going to be really fun when it releases. I'm not, because I'm not someone who always needs, I think, originality. I think just having a different or a fun or an alternate take on something can be just as enjoyable, especially for me. So there's also some really gorgeous art online if you're wanting to get excited for this, for all of the characters that Aiden Thomas has created, um, all of the different competitors in the Sunbearer Trials, plus their godly parent if we're going to use the Percy Jackson uh, way of talking about it. The influences you can see just like from the art or even hearing about the story are obviously very South American and Aztec in particular. So 
Thomas is a translatine author, and they are very good at bringing those elements of their background into the story. And a few competitors in the trials are also trans or non-binary, including Teo, who is a trans man. In general, again, looks to be super fun. I'm a sucker for that kind of myth. And I actually have some paintings that one of my friends did for some of the different gods and stuff on my walls. So I was pretty pleased that Quetzal was going to be Teo's godly parent. All right. And I think that means that we are going to go to Kareen next. All right. I'm going I'm to go to type. And if you are playing at home, the Keep It Fictional drinking game, you may want to get a beverage handy because my book is specifically chosen. And honestly, I think it was translated because of BTS. In fact, on the uh, English translation of this book, it says the South Korean hit therapy memoir recommended by BTS's RM on the cover. But this is also a book that I have wanted to read for a, a, a very long time. As mentioned, it is a kind of quasi-memoir of sorts. It is about Beck Sahi, and she was a very successful social media director at a publishing house and started to realize that she was feeling nothing, absolutely nothing. Would wake up and go through the motions of the day and pretend to be able to talk to people and pretend to feel normal and excited about things, but inside she was really feeling nothing. And so she decided to visit a psychiatrist about this hopelessness that she was feeling. And what this book is, is 12 weeks of conversation with this uh, psychiatrist. It is reflective. It is uh, kind of a series of micro essays reflecting on her own depression, her own kind of like mental cycles and struggles that she was going through. And as the end of the book says, it's a it's a kind of a book that you can reach for in times of, of darkness. So if you really enjoy like a... It's not exactly a self-help book, but kind of like an exploration of someone's uh, mental illness or mental struggles. If you really enjoyed something like The Courage to be Disliked, or if you just want to read every single book that RM has ever read, and maybe you have a list somewhere that you're slowly crossing off and just waiting for all of them to be translated into English, you will want to pick up I Want to Die, But I Want to Eat Tokbuki <laughs> by Bexahia. Well, I'm glad you find your BTS connection. I am so glad for you. So happy for you, Corinne. All right. So that's round one. Got a bit of everything, it seems like. So let's go into round two. Corinne, who do you like to start with? I love this. This is kind of like keeping us on our toes. I'm going to like, um, because Fiona and I were having the same technology problems this morning, I'm going to go with my, my tech twin, Fiona. Also, just want to say I love a quasi a quasi memoir. Just yeah, so good. Okay, so this is my second pick, but also my second most anticipated. Would be the first if I didn't have a total knockout coming. It is an author known to me and many who uh, I really enjoy, and they are following in some of uh, the same steps of the books that I've really enjoyed. So. This is A Scatter of Light by Melinda Lowe, who I uh, think last last year, maybe, uh, last night of at the Telegraph Club was uh, one of my, my favorite picks of the year. So very much anticipating this one because it has actually been advertised as a companion to last night at the Telegraph Club in a way that I deeply appreciate in that it's like, 
not really, but like has some maybe world connections. This is, of course, speaking of like a realistic fiction. So those world connections are purely character swooning a little bit. Also, of course, most excited about this book due to circumstance or than actual plot, which I've not read about. Melinda Lowe has uh, said she's she's moving into like a little more literary kind of niche lately and moving away from the genre. And all I have to say is get it, Melinda. Yeah. <laughs> and this is actually a book that she wrote almost a decade ago prior to last night at the Telegraph Club. And then it sat for a while, waiting, waiting for the right, I guess, the, the right sort of political atmosphere. Um, so I'm really glad that she did uh, hold on to it and and that someone did eventually pick it up because it sounds like it was, it was met with a little bit of resistance due to some of the queer content. And so this is a book that follows Aria, a young Chinese-American woman who is graduating. And it sounds like there's some sort of scandal, which basically causes her to be exiled to a small town with her grandmother over the summer. Very excited about the grandmother character. She sounds like a, oh man, I have to go stay with my granny. That stinks. And then I imagine that we are going to slowly find out some things uh, about her grandma's past, which will be very exciting. I love a like quietly interesting old person. Um, <laughs> oh, it's so early, everyone. I'm sorry. I need a second coffee. This also kind of promises to be a, a quiet queer story, which, you know, fantastic. You've got that rural setting. Sounds like Arya meets her grandma's gardener and and makes some discoveries about herself through through those feelings. Um, the gardener, I believe, is a non-binary or at least a trans character. So very there for that. And so that's the sort of like the narrowed in picture. All of this is happening around the time of the Supreme Court decision to legalize gay marriage. It's it's funny because you know that was that was not very long ago. So it's not like it's it's historical, but it is uh, something that we can kind of look back on, but of course has um, relevance to our current political situation and the fear around repeal. Um, so definitely a time that I am looking forward to immersing myself in, you know, as someone who was like a little bit younger during that time. And then uh, looking back at how recent that was and and how much we take that decision for granted. So excited to to see these characters in their their quiet uh, rural village and self-discovery all on the backdrop of this Supreme Court decision. And then there are promises of some link to Last Night at the Telegraph Club. So excited to find out where that link actually is. Yeah, I am hoping to get to this one before the end of the year because I'm kind of thinking that it might be a, you know, like a Melinda Lowe streak and and maybe up there for my favorites. So that is A Scatter of Light by Melinda Lowe. I get to pick who's next, right? Uh, Virginia? I feel like quiet, interesting old person is going to go on the bingo board. It's going to be going on that bingo board. All right. So this one here is part of my searching for more books 
about sort of the deep sea ever since I read like Our Wives Under the Sea by Julie Armfield that I talked about on this podcast. I was like, oh yeah, I need some more deep sea books. And of course, it's like so many things can kill you in the deep sea kind of books, not like the deep sea full of wonders kind of book. I kind of have my eye on this particular one also because I'm a sucker for blurbs and early praises by other authors that I respect and like because you can tell for the premise of a book from the description, but you can never really get a sense of like what type of book is it going to be? What kind of vibe is it going to be? So when I saw that this book has praises from Anne Lackey, Kawaii Strong Washburn, David Mitchell, and Jeff Vandermeer, I'm like, okay, I think I am here for those. Um, so this is The Mountain in the Sea by Ray Naylor. I believe this is their debut novel. Um, they write a lot of short fiction in a lot of the science fiction magazines. And they also did a lot of environmental studies and spent a lot of years in Vietnam. And they are apparently the international advisor to the Office of National Marine Sanctuaries. So I think they probably know what they are talking about when it comes to this deep sea stuff. Um, so this is a story that happens near an island in Vietnam. And uh, we have discovered another intelligent species, a species of octopus that has their own language, has their own culture, and they t seem to communicate through the symbols that surface on their skins. And these octopus seems to be super intelligent. And you know, humans, when we see something smarter than us, we think that they are dangerous. Um, so there's this international cooperation that decided to seal off that whole area, made it a restricted place, and they only sent a few people to go and study these octopus. And one of the people is a doctor named Ha. They are marine biologists. And this is sort of like a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity for them to learn about these octopus. And they're so, they're so, so eager to start. Even give that contract has a lot of weird restrictions on it, including some death threats, basically. Like, you cannot leave the island without permission and all kind of really like scary clauses in it. But they are so, so excited to have this opportunity to study the octopus. Joining Ha is a security drone operator and also the world's first android, an android named Ephraim, who is starting to break down because they're having a little bit of existential crisis, trying to figure out, like, am I alive? Am I a person? Who am I? So there's a little bit of that going on. And as they are researching into these octopus, they realize that what they learn can make huge, huge advances for human in technology. And of course, that means many people want a piece of that. People with a lot of power, people with a lot of money, everybody wants to get control of this. But no one has asked the octopus what they want just yet. Mountain in the Sea by Ray Naylor sounds like a bit of a science fiction thriller type, which is usually not my type of book. But I can tell there is also going to be a very like deep dive into sort of the whole nature of consciousness, you know, like a nature of uh, like artificial intelligence, about sentience and all that kind of stuff. And apparently it has the best villain ever. So I am looking forward to that. Maybe like a bit of more quieter kind of science fiction that I don't usually read a lot of, but you know, lately um, I, I want to go into that deep sea. So um, this is The Mountain in the Sea by Ray Naylor. All right. Gabriel, what have you got next? All right. 
So I think the scariest thing about the book that you just talked about is that description of the island and all the people who go there to study the thing. I'm pretty sure that's happened a couple times throughout history for real. And I don't think it ended super well. I don't know if anybody's ever heard the podcast Limetown, but that's what it reminded me of. So my next book <laughs> is, again, Who Would Have Thunk It? Science Fiction and Fantasy. But this one is called Thistlefoot, and it's by Jenna Rose Nethercott. So Nethercott has also produced an award-winning book of poetry called The Lumberjack's Dove, which is a narrative poem featuring a folktale-like lumberjack who cuts his own hand off, and it turns into a dove. And when I read that, and then I got a little excerpt of the poem, I immediately tried to see if we have it. We don't. In fact, I don't think most of the libraries have it around here, but I'm kind of interested, so I might try and find that. She also does historical research for the podcast Lore, which is another podcast that I mentioned on here before. And so I knew just from previous experience with that, uh, she has a very lyrical way of talking about myths and folktales. And so that was something I was really interested to see brought in into sort of a new story format. Uh, so this one is, it, while it has a strong background in, in folktale and myth, it definitely is a lot of her own story as well. And in fact, the promo for this book actually features a quote from Lemony Snicket and has been described as like American gods. So someone signed and addressed this to me. And I was like, okay, you know what? I'll come and talk about it. I'll come and talk about it. I'll read it. I'm excited. I even looked at the cover and went, oh, yeah, this is one. This is one. It has a house on it on top of chicken legs. And so if you know anything about folktales, you know what that means. So Thistlefoot explores Eastern European folklore, and it delves into the idea of which stories have power and which stay with us long enough to haunt us. So the cover has Baba Yaga's house on it, which for those of you who might be unfamiliar, it's a house that moves. It's perched on top of those enormous chicken legs. And the reason that it's on the cover is because the main characters are the Yaga siblings. Valentine and Isaac have been estranged since childhood, with resentment simmering between them, kept separate from like the sheer geographic distance of America. So Isaac is a busker and a con artist. Valentine is a woodworker, and they live very different lives. But they're brought together again when they have to face their inheritance. This inheritance is Thistlefoot, the family home. It traveled from Russia to find them. And that's not the only thing that has tracked them to America. Something called, and when I heard this name, it was it's one of those ones where for some reason there's just like certain words that can make me paranoid. But the long shadow man walks behind it. And I, I hate that idea. Anything even like remotely approaching Slenderman, I'm gone. I hate it. But it seems that it's going to be kind of interesting because I think, I mean, the Long Shadow Man, while as an actual threat in the book, seems to also be as much metaphor as it is anything else. And so the siblings kind of have to take up the mantle of their family and they travel together as a theater show. And the Long Shadow Man kind of follows behind them, bringing carnage and destruction with him. So together, they're going to have to face the realities of their bloodline, and kind of create a new future for themselves without forgetting their past. So maybe a slightly different approach to sort of generational trauma or generational curses. It's a, it's a long shadow man. He's an, he's an actual, he's an actual curse. 
probably that's going to be coming for you. So uh, this one's set to come out in early September as well. I'm excited for it. Personally, I think that her prose might be the shining star of this one because she she really does have a very lyrical way of talking. And there's going to be a lot of attention to detail in terms of the folklore that she's drawing from because she has that uh, historical research background. So that's Thistlefoot by Jenna Rose Nethercott. And I think that means Mark is next. Okay. Thank you, Gabriel. So the next book that I'll be talking about is one that people probably won't be surprised that I'm going to be talking about. And that is a novelist as a vocation by Haruki Murakami. So this book is a series of nonfiction essays actually by Murakami. So it's not actually a work of fiction as you might've expected from him, but this collection promises to reveal Murakami's secrets on his production of literature, his literary inspirations and his process of writing. As his many fans have always sort of wondered like, well, what exactly does he think? Where do these weird things come from exactly? And in this collection, it was originally published in 2015, I think it was, in Japan. It's been released this coming November. I haven't been able to find very much advanced like information about what the essays are actually going to cover. But given the fact that it's just Murakami, so you really do not know what direction he's going to go in. I almost expect there to be several essays just on like rock music and then like an essay on like why he has fish and ears and all these things in all his different books and things like that. But even with that kind of mystery, it almost seems appropriate for Murakami that you don't really know what you're going to get when you pick up this book and where he's going to go with his idiosyncratic thoughts and things like that. Just for me personally, just looking forward to this book because I've always found his work interesting, even though at times it's very confusing or at times like just like outright frustrating or infuriating even at times. There's a lot of things I really like about his writing, but at times it's just like there's always this this one weird thing that just kind of sticks out that you're trying to figure out why it's there. Why did he come up with that? Where where did this come from? And hopefully <laughs> in this collection, we'll get a little bit of insight into his thinking process because in the previous interviews I've seen of him or heard like it, he's given, he often will be very elusive or almost aloof, just trying not to be very specific. And where he says that things come from, he just sort of says it, I just sort of sit down and write and it comes to me, you know how it is. That really is kind of how he is at times from what I've heard. So this hopefully will be a little bit more detailed, more insightful than his kind of past evasiveness. And it sort of seems like in his recent years, he's tried to be a little bit more open in a way. He's donated his whole archive of papers and computers and records and everything to a university library in Japan. So hopefully this is kind of like part of a process of more like opening up as he sort of gets older because he's a bit of an old man now, to be honest. Like... (laughs) Let's be honest here. He's, he's, he's not the youngest guy. So yeah, Novelist's Vocation by Haruki Murakami. Will he reveal all or will he be as elusive and deceptive as ever? And now Kareen. Well, mine isn't going to slam an old man, but a scathing indictment of Murakami on this podcast. Um, please direct your complaints and letters to Mark at the Keep It Fictional podcast. Um, so I'm going to change tracks a little bit. Mark is doing very Mark books, so I'm going to go and do a Kareen book here. And this one is kind of in my alley in that it is a little bit of a mystery and a, maybe a little bit of a horror. Like, I'll take, like, I know, I know Virginia, but I will take, like, okay, if this is my mystery, I'm willing to take about this, like, leave room at the top for horror. I don't mind a little horror. 
as long as it doesn't have to do with worms because they're gross. They're gross. And no, no. All right. So this is about uh, Liz Rusher. And she is returning back to her very small Rust Belt town that is predominantly white reluctantly. She hasn't been back ever since she could get out, but her best friend is getting married, and so she feels obligated to go back to her hometown and endure all of the passive-aggressive questions that come with that. As the wedding is happening, festivities, drink, revelry, the couple's daughter, Carolyn, disappears. All that is left of her is a white cloth that is covered in blood. And for Liz, this is not just a tragedy in and of itself, but it also brings back previous tragedies that she remembers from her youth. In high school, the only other Black student there, Krisha, one day wandered into the woods and was later found with her heart pulled out. As the police and the community is trying their best to find this young Black girl, Liz starts to do a little bit of investigation on her own and discovers that this city's history is rife with eerily similar tales. Black young girls wandering into the forest and going missing forever. This book is Jackal by Aaron E. Adams, and it promises to be a little bit of a thriller, a little bit of a mystery, a little bit of a horror. I love small town secrets, and uh, this book has been getting some really good reviews, so I'm excited to kind of delve into that experience of a of a, of a Black woman and a Black family in a, like a predominantly in that Rust Belt area, because oftentimes it can be more of an urban experience, and she is is definitely talking about kind of like that smaller town feeling from her own personal uh, life. So I am very, very excited to delve into this, this, I don't know, lost people don't go into the woods thriller. Again, don't go into the woods. That's just a life lesson. All you people going camping this summer, be it on your heads. Oh, well, thank you, Corinne. Um, so that is our second round of books, I think, right? Completed our second round. Yes, yes. Okay. All right. So five more to go for today and then 10 more for next week. So Corinne, who would you like to get started on a third round? Okay. Well, I'm honestly, Gabriel's books have been sounding very interesting to me. So I'm curious to see what comes in at number three for Gabriel. All right. So. Again, science fiction and fantasy for you all. But this one, with some horror mixed in, this one is a young adult horror and fantasy anthology full of short stories from Latin American authors about monsters inspired by legend. This is Our Shadows Have Claws, edited by, there's a long list of authors, but it's edited by Shamile Said Mendez and Amparo Ortez. These 15 stories range from uh, the horrific to the magical and everything in between. They take place in Latin America and the diaspora as well. It explores a lot of different topics, oppression, empowerment, love, grief, kinship, 
I think the kinship in particular is something that I'm really looking forward to because I think that usually takes a very unique stance in a lot of the legends and folklore from the different areas. So I'm really, really curious to see how that plays out in our stories. There are some darker ones. Uh, there's some lighter ones. And of course, it goes far beyond like El Chupacabra or La, La Llorona and sort of explores more things like we have vampires and slayers. We have zombies. We have <laughs> something that translates to the old man with the bag. El viejo de la bolsa. So that is that's a very like hookman looking one. And I was very curious about that when I Googled the picture. Some of the clip art for this fellow. <laughs> Truly horrific. We have shapeshifters of all kinds. It includes stories of Bruja who can get back at cheating boyfriends, like wolf gods that can take down bullies, fireflies that can offer protection. Yeah, it it seems. It seems interesting. Looks like it's one of those ones where the evils of the world aren't always monsters. There are also military dictatorships, negligent governments that turn a blind eye to the plights of their people, homophobia, gender-based violence, racism, U.S. interventionism, environmental destruction. So some very real problems mixed in. And especially environmental destruction is always one of those ones that I think ties really well in with folklore and stories. And so I'm very curious to see which direction they take with a lot of these. It's always a plus for me when sci-fi and fantasy can kind of tackle real life issues. And a lot of the monsters are ones that I actually have never heard of before. So we have some from Haiti and the Dominican. We have some from Colombia, and I'm sure I'll find many more things inside. So this one also is due out in early September. Feels like most of the stuff I found is coming out pretty soon with almost like nothing in December. I don't know if books just don't get published then, or if nobody wants to read sci-fi and fantasy then. Because again, only sci-fi and fantasy this time. So that is Our Shadows Have Claws. And I will pass it on to Fiona. Thank you. (laughs) All right. My final and third for today is a debut novel from an absolute wrecking ball of a poet, a minor chorus, a novel, so you know it's not poetry, um, by Billy Ray Belcourt. Now, I don't think I've had a chance to talk about this book on the podcast, but he or or this collection of poetry. But um, I read a history of my brief body by Belcourt, and would definitely um, liken it a lot to Ocean Buang's work. So it just that absolute gut punch of poetry. Um, which I think is how I like my poetry, filled with saliva, very real, very, yeah, yeah, very fluid-based. I don't know, but that is absolutely something I will stand by about Belcourt's poetry. It's real, and I am so in awe, poets who are able to, like, have that poetic voice that's, you know, like very, a beautiful way of looking at the world, but also just gritty, like, like not, not gritty, like Marvel, (laughs) gritty, like, like, yeah, no, no punches pulled, not, not skipping any, any reality of life. So, like I said, this is their debut novel. He is from the Driftpile First Nation, uh, and he is a queer poet and author currently teaching creative writing at UBC. So go us, I guess. Um, exciting to to have him 
here, but the novel is actually about a home going to Alberta. And I love this because it's a novel about writing a novel, which for sometimes uh, is a concept that's a little bit like, oh, really? But I feel like um, for someone like Billy Ray Belcourt, who I think is a poet and an author by nature, like they couldn't be anything else, if that makes sense. It's like, you know, they probably got a book deal to to live their life. And so why not write about what they're living in their life? So this book is about an unnamed narrator who is returning home to Alberta, and they have given up on their attempt to write their first novel. So it sounds like it's very much drawn from the author's experience. And I think it's going to touch on all of those aspects of returning to a rural area for a rest. And then, you know, this is this is the bingo for me, I think, of like home going and then you go home and you have to face all of all of those things in the past that you maybe were avoiding. But it sounds like there's also a side story of a cousin who has been arrested and imprisoned and their shared grandmother is very concerned about this uh, and it sounds like it's sort of used as a foil for our unnamed narrator uh, sort of like possible other path we have this very academic unnamed narrator and then we sort of see the the alternate path and grapple with of course the the relationship to colonialism and racism that sort of spiral into that path. So again, in the past when I've read Belcourt's work, it hasn't been so much about about the the string of narrative as just the way that they write, just absolute gut-wrenching. So I pretty much will read any words that they write, like the kind of person who they 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 read a tweet or they, you know, like just anything they write embodies bodies this this worldview and this this absolute rawness. So why not have that be in in the form of a novel, you know, which is hopefully at least two hundred pages, and I will devour every word. That is a minor chorus from Billy Ray Belcourt. Yeah, I'm looking forward to actually getting a chance to talk about their poetry at some point as well. All right, uh, I will throw it back to Kareen. Well, thank you, my tech twin. All right. I am also going to talk. Oh, gosh, this is hard. About a Canadian author. This is tough for me. And also one uh, who actually lives in uh, Calgary or Treaty 7 territory. This is their new book after their very, very successful uh, Witchmark trilogy and The Midnight Bargain which was one of the CBC Canada Reads books. Ooh, last year? Last year? Sure. Time. Who knows about time? Um, But I would argue that this book is a little bit of a departure for them. It's maybe not the book that I thought they would write, but I'm also very into discovering how they're going to take the genre of like a 1920s noir detective and kind of spin it on its head with a little bit of like a beautiful sapphic bow on top. Ding! So this is about a magical detective in Chicago. She's an exiled auger who 
you know, is facing a bit of a crunch. In the way that all noir detectives, uh, she's a little bit down on her luck. Things haven't been going the way she wanted them to go. And so her soul is due for an eternity in hell on Monday. Yeah. Sometimes the bills are due. Sometimes your hell is, your your soul is doomed to an eternity of torment. But of course, someone walks into her office and it is a client offering the ultimate job, the job that is going to solve all of her problems. And at first, our detective says, no thanks. But then the client offers that one hook to draw them back in. This one last job that if they succeed, Instead of having to go to hell, they can instead spend their entire eternity and grow old with the woman that they love. And how can you refuse a deal like that? The only problem is that this client wants our detective to track down the White City Vampire, a serial killer who is haunting the streets of Chicago and who is a dangerous foe to even the most experienced jaded detective. As the end of the blurb on the back of the book says, hell and heartbreak await. This is Even Though I Knew the End by C.L. Polk. I am very, very excited about this. I love a good noir. I love a good fantasy. And I feel like this has got some real like H.H. Holmes vibes and like Devil in the White City. So it's going to be very crimey, very fantasy. I'm very, very much looking forward to this. So this is this is why it gets my top three, my top three. I, I want some sad sack detectives. All right. And I am just because like, I feel like Mark has been very Mark. I want to see what is even like markier than the last Mark Mark book. Okay. Thank you, Corrine. And in a way you're kind of right because the next book I'm going to talk about is called Ocean's Echo by Everina Maxwell. And people who listen to our recent space opera episode know that I talked about her first book, uh, Winter's Orbit. And this book does take place in the same universe as Winter's Orbit. So we're going to get another space opera here. And this story, like its predecessor, focuses on a pair of characters and their roles in maintaining and serving their respective galactic empires. It takes place in a much different part of the universe from the first novel. So as far as I can tell, the characters of the previous novel aren't going to be appearing in this one. But it's going to have a similar kind of structure with these two pair of characters who are in a sort of like uncomfortable kind of relationship. They have a tension between the two there's uncertain motivations on the part of the different characters and the different factions so it has a very space opery feel to it in that way and the first of our two main characters is Tanalhin Halkana and he has the ability to read minds and that's because Tanal is was in this universe called neuromodified as a reader and a reader they're very strategically important he's sort of constructed into the military because they want to control this kind of ability. They don't want to just be out there for anyone to be using, like any corporation can just hire a mind reader or whatever. It's very much something that is treated as like almost like a national security kind of asset or issue. And Tanal is placed under the command of our second lead character, the the Lieutenant Sarit Yeni. Um, He's a very duty-driven kind of person. He's a a leader, very principled in his kind of ideals, and feelings towards what a soldier should be, how you should be very much loyal to your country and things like that. And much like Tanal, Sarit is also neuromodified. 
but he is what is known as an architect, which means he can impose certain thoughts and ideas into the minds of others. And this sort of combination of these two reader and architect is sort of like the kind of duo that the military is teaming them up together as part of like a special unit. But also Sarit has become torn because he's received orders that he's supposed to control Tanal by merging their minds together, essentially. And he's sort of outwardly, they're sort of trying to acquiesce to their orders, but inwardly, they're very much repulsed by this idea of like trying to essentially control someone else's mind and sort of impose it on that person. So instead, he's sort of, they're sort of conspiring to fake a merging of their minds while actually secretly sort of trying to create their own plots to evade control. But of course, because this is a space opera, while they're out on a routine mission, there's unexpected circumstances that thrust them into a series of dangerous and political power struggles that sort of threatens their tenuous balance between each other and the balance that has come to reign in their part of the universe. So that is Ocean's Echo by Everina Maxwell. Okay, I guess that just leaves Virginia now then. All right. So I'm returning a little bit of favor because like somebody talked about like the whatever book with a little bit of horror. So I guess I'll talk about my book with a little bit of mystery maybe in it. What do you do if people around you keep getting murdered? That's the little problem that Mallory Viridian is having. Murder just finds her. You can call her a serial witness to murder. And it's not very good for business if you are trying to be an amateur detective. And you can't blame the police if they keep looking, wait, it's you again. Why are you here again? Because they are, again, a witness to yet another murder. But they're also quite good at solving these murders. So the police has to go from kind of being like really suspicious about like, did you do something? To like, oh, can you help us solve this murder case? So Mallory is having this problem. And she decided that, you know what, enough is enough. I don't know why murder keeps happening around me. Even if I go to a party, someone will drop dead. So you know what, I, I think I need to do something about this. So she decides to move away. Not just away to another city or another country, but she decides to move away off Earth to an alien space station. A sentient space station, to be exact, that you only have no humans. No humans at all, just aliens. Well, maybe except one human. There's the am human ambassador, but that's okay. He's okay. If you move to a place where there's no humans, that means no one's going to get murdered and everything is going to be fine. So her new life is going pretty well until the station decides to allow some more humans to come on board. A space shuttle, she finds out, is heading towards the space station. And she thought like they have got this agreement that there should be no more humans. But apparently, they decided not. They're going to get some more human tourists. Oh no, someone is going to die. Mallory just knew it. And how is she going to stop that? 
This is a new book by Mer Lafferty, and this is called Station Eternity. Mer Lafferty is a uh, podcaster. Uh, she does the I Should Be Writing uh, podcast for writers and also Escape Pod, which is a science fictional podcast. Um, she also is a novelist who writes uh, one of my favorite locker room mystery books that I might have to talk about later on one of our episodes. It's called Six Weeks. So I decided to pick this up even give the premise of the book sounds a little bit more like a cozy murder mystery with an amateur detective book, which is totally not my type. But I do have faith in Murder Friday. I think this is going to be fine. And of course, mystery, murder, everything is better in space, as you all know. So it's got a great cast of characters. It's got good bantering, apparently got some really cool aliens. And it's definitely written by someone who knows science fiction very well. So I, I think this is going to be fine. And as T. Kingfisher said, as if Corinne needs another, like somebody to convince her to read this book, T. Kingfisher said, if Jessica Fletcher ended on Babylon 5, you are going to get Station Eternity. So coming out in October, supposedly book one in um, the series, uh, it is Station Eternity. I am so excited. Murder, She Wrote is my favorite series of all time. I know. <laughs> but it was actually kind of fun. So far, at least from the bits I read, it's actually kind of fun. Um, and I do love those aliens. So anyway, so um, thank you, everybody. Um, I, I think we got some really, really good books, some very on-brand book and some very not on-brand books, but they all sound great. So I hope that listeners, you find some that you also enjoy. And so we'll see you again next week for the next two rounds of books with 10 more for you. We'll see if like any old man show up in those. So uh, see you next week. Bye. <laughs> Any old man. Thank you for listening. If you like our show, please tell a fellow book lover about it. You can find a list of all the books we discussed in our show notes. Join us next week for another fun book chat. Until then, keep it fictional. Mm -hmm.